It's a pleasure to be back with you again. Happy Father's Day. In case you hadn't noticed, something appears to have gone wrong with the world. Not only are we living in the aftermath of a worldwide pandemic, but we're also dealing with rising inflation, increasing violence, and numerous cases of social unrest. Of course, the way the story is often told, uh, the strife that we're witnessing all around us is the result of liberal policies and programs that just don't work. Or on the other side of the fence, it's conservative inaction to address systemic problems like inequity, injustice, climate change. As time marches on, each side continues to blame the other side, the political opponents, for all the problems in the world. And if we could just get rid of them, the people causing the problem, then all would be right with our country. The people who are destroying the planet or our nation would be done away with, and we could have a jolly good time. But as you know, the problem doesn't simply lie with this group or that. The problem is actually much more serious. In fact, no group of human beings has ever been able to create any form of utopia anywhere on the planet, nor will they ever be able to do so. This is why if you pick up a newspaper or a history book, <laughs> you'll see that conflict, war, and strife are universal constants. Once our first parents committed high treason and rebelled against their creator, ever since then, all their posterity have been banished from paradise. In fact, Genesis 3.24 actually tells us that God drove man out of the garden and at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim with the flashing sword that turned every way to guard man from re-entering into the garden so that he could access the tree of life. That's what's wrong with the world. We're banned from paradise. In the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, we begin to see the horizontal effects of sin as Cain ended up murdering his own brother. Cain, of course, wasn't the victim of failed government policies, programs, or corrupt social institutions because they weren't around yet. No, the problem had to do with his own sinful passions. Later, in Genesis chapter 6, we're told that the wickedness was so great in the earth that every intention of man's thoughts and his, of his hearts were evil continually. And this is what motivated God to send the flood. Nevertheless, in the midst of judgment, God remembered mercy. Unfortunately, however, the flood didn't solve the world's problems. You know, how many were left? There were eight in the boat. This is a church group. The rest of the world's history comes from church people, and it's a mess. As soon as the waters began to recede, we see the effects of sin taking hold in the lives of Noah and his descendants. And by the time we get to Genesis 11, those descendants, some of them, began to multiply and fill the earth. And according to verse 4, a particular group of men banded together and said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top reaching to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. To the question, what is the chief end of man? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But that's definitely not the answer you'd get from the tower builders 
there in Babel. Their goal was to build a great tower and city in order to make a name for themselves. In verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 11, the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the men had built. And it says, uh, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is the only this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. And so just as God had earlier cursed the ground so that it produced thorns and thistles as well as fruit-bearing plants, here in Genesis 11, God curses the people by confusing their language in order to frustrate their plans. In effect, they were attempting by their own technology a way to sort of uh, to create or attempt to create heaven on earth. It was to be a kind of virtual paradise. In a way, you might say it's, it was an attempt to bypass the cherubim with a flashing sword. You know, they wanted paradise, but in this sort of new iteration, they were attempting to sort of create a paradise without God in it. They wanted peace and security and they wanted to build this for their own sake. They wanted this return to paradise so that all would go well with their plans. God, in this vision, in this version of the story, is the one who has been banished, if only from their hearts and minds. The chief end was not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. This is what's wrong with the world. You see, we're all descended from rebellious people like this. And our first parents were the first rebels. By nature, all of us long for some kind of autonomous existence. Though we all long to get back to paradise, we want things to go swimmingly well. We just don't want God to be there, (laughs) ruling over us. We don't want to glorify God. We want to be gods ourselves. Wasn't that the temptation in the garden? You shall be like gods. Autonomy. The stark reality, however, is that whenever men have attempted to create some kind of earthly utopia, instead of creating this utopia, they've typically created dystopia. Hell on earth. C.S. Lewis once observed that the trouble we encounter all around us, all the disease, all the Conflict and the strife is actually God's megaphone reminding us that all is not right with the world. Because we are all created in God's image, we long to see things made right. We have eternity written on our hearts. That's why we long for paradise. But we have no way of getting back through into Eden, past the angel, the cherubim with the flashing sword that is apart from God's gracious intervention. So with this background background, uh, and introduction, let's take a look this morning, this afternoon. It's hard. Preachers preach for so many years with mourning. Let's let's, Let's look at Genesis 28 this afternoon as we consider the story of Jacob and the great ladder to heaven. This story takes place just after Jacob received, uh, Jacob had deceived actually his father, by wearing Esau's clothing and lying about his identity. And that language is there in Genesis 20, 27. If you want to take a look at it, it says, you know, he deceived 
uh, his father. And this is why, actually, his brother Esau wanted to kill him. And this is why Jacob is actually fleeing the land in the scene. He's leaving the land of promise, the, the land promised uh, to the offspring of Abraham. And he is fleeing because he's fearing for his life. And it was on this particular journey that Jacob stopped for the night and dreamed of a ladder set up on the earth with the top reaching to heaven. There are some obvious parallels here to the story that we've considered already from Genesis 11, Genesis 11 with the story of the Tower of Babel. In both cases, a kind of bridge between heaven and earth comes into view. In the first case, the tower reaching to the heavens was actually achieved, was not actually achieved because God had cursed the project. Yet here in chapter 28, another bridge comes into focus. And this time, the stairway isn't something created by man. It's not something that the people built, but it's something that God provided in his own mercy and grace. And as you recall, Jacob wasn't even looking for God. He's just getting out of dodge. He is afraid of being attacked by his brother, So he is not seeking God in this moment. He is just leaving the city. He's not trying to engineer any kind of utopian society. He's not trying to make peace on earth. He's just heading away from the promised land as a result of his own sin, treachery, and deceit. Genesis 11.5 says that God came down to see the tower that the men were building there in Babel. And then he dispersed the people from that city. Yet here in Genesis 28... God came down, not to curse, but to bless. This is unexpected. What we witness here in this passage is the very same principle that would later be revealed to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, when he said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. In short, what both these passages make clear is that God does not bless those who attempt to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. He doesn't come to rescue those who try hard to save themselves, who are working to repair the damage, to repair the breach, to make things better. That's not who he came to rescue in this scene. Those who just needed a little extra help. No. From the very beginning, from the first book of the Bible, actually, we see that God has always rejected that sort of project-building approach. The desire to make our own way to paradise is also what drives fallen men to create modern-day towers of Babel. Whether the builders have dreams of creating some form of utopia or whether the towers they build are constructed of false religion and distorted theology. Either way, the goal is to ascend the heights to make our way back to Eden by our own work and effort. But as we've seen, The way back to paradise is forever blocked. And regardless of our deepest desires, our destiny is to live here, east of Eden, in the land of thorns and thistles and envy and hatred and spite and murder. That's that's our lot in in relationship to what our parents did. this This is our place. This is the curse we have to bear living here. And yet, surprisingly, in Jacob's case, 
God decided to graciously intervene. In verses 10 and 11 of Genesis chapter 28, we're specifically told that Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and that he came to a certain place after the sun had set where he stopped for the night. And as he slept, God appeared to him in a dream. The first thing we should notice here in Genesis 28 is that Jacob is fast asleep. He's fast asleep through all the important drama of this scene. And we should reflect upon that. In fact, this is actually something you find in a lot of passages in Scripture. It happens a lot, actually. Amazing things happen while people sleep. (laughs) Really important things, which is very unlike what we saw in Genesis 11. They were hard working at building. But think about Abraham, for example, in Genesis chapter 15. He was asleep and God walked through the animal pieces. And God is the one swearing all the oaths to make promises. Very important covenantal oaths, showing it was a one-sided promise because Abraham was inactive. This is the scene in which Abraham was told that he was righteous by faith. Before Abraham, Adam was put to sleep while a Uh, his rib was taken from his side and fashioned into his bride. But all these events pale in comparison to the amazing things that were accomplished as Christ slept in the dust of death. When his side was opened up by the soldier's spear, blood and water flowed, which is a source of life for his bride, the church. But here in Genesis 28, you'll notice that while Jacob is sleeping, he's not building anything. He's not working hard in behalf of the oppressed. He's not fasting or involved in any kind of monastic ritual. He's completely inactive. And this is how God saves us. While we're completely inactive, he acts on our behalf. When we're dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ by his gracious initiative. The next thing we notice here in Genesis 28 is that as Jacob slept... He dreamt of a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of which reached all the way to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. That which the people of Babel strove for in Genesis 11 end up eluding them. The, The plans that they had for building this tower that reached to heaven were thwarted. But here in Genesis 28, Jacob is sleeping and completely inactive and is graciously given access to this ladder which had descended from heaven. It wasn't something that that ascended to heaven, it descended from heaven. Now the Hebrew word here that is translated ladder can actually be translated stairway. And I think that's a better way to read this because if you think about a single ladder, you know, with rungs, you can't get a lot of traffic you know, one person coming, going down while the other goes up. But rather, if it's a stairway, a broad stairway, that makes much more sense of this angelic traffic that's being described in this text. It's a great broad stairway leading to heaven, which actually fits the, the sort of um, archaeological artifacts that we find throughout the Mideast. There are these things called ziggurats. You may have heard of them. They're very much like pyramids. But on these ziggurats that you find... 
again, throughout the ancient Near East, is you find these wide staircases that go to the very top. And at the top of some of these ziggurats, you'll actually find inscriptions which say things like, the gate of heaven. This is the, the kind of thing that people found. And this is also language we find in our text here this, this afternoon from Genesis 28. In verse 13, we're told that the Lord stood above this grand stairway leading to the heavens. After consulting a number of books on the subject and Hebrew dictionaries, it turns out that there are a number of other possible ways to translate this section as well. Uh, one option is that, as our text here from the ESV says, the Lord stood above the ladder. Another option is that the Lord stood beside him, meaning Jacob. He stood next to him. And there are some theologians in Bible translations that like that, the, NA, the NRSV, for example, and a few other Bible translations prefer that. So you'll see, and the Lord stood next to Jacob. Uh, but there's another translation that I actually prefer even more than either of these two options. I'm convinced that the best way to translate this is actually to say that the Lord stood upon it, referring to the staircase. This is the way that William Tyndale, the famous Bible translator, rendered this from the Hebrew. And it's also the way that the Greek Septuagint translated this from the Hebrew to the Greek. The Lord stood upon it. The Lord was on the ladder. Throughout most of my Christian life, I've been a Christian for 30-something years now, I've read this passage uh, the older way with the Lord standing above the ladder and I sort of pictured this as God the Father doing the speaking with the, the latter itself being a symbol of Christ. He's prophesied in this text. But now I'm convinced that Jesus is actually the one doing the speaking. He's the one who shows up here in this passage. He's the one who stands upon this great stairway and makes these gracious promises to Jacob. I'll try and defend that uh, position here this morning. The first uh, text that I'll point you to, I'll invite you to turn briefly uh, to, is Genesis 31. In Genesis 31, we find Jacob uh, is fleeing from his father-in-law Laban. He's been up there for 20-something years. He's leaving, and he meets up with Laban. And in verse 10 of Genesis 31... Jacob told his father-in-law, Laban, that he had a dream about a variety of goats that were breeding. And in verse 11, quote, the angel of God, he says, said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Now, jump to verse 13. Here in verse 13, the angel who showed up to, who identified himself to Jacob in the dream, identifies himself saying, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a memorial stone and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. And this is the scene where Jacob heads back to the promised land. But think about this for a minute. Bethel is the name of the place of our text here in Genesis chapter 28. This is where Yahweh, the Lord, revealed himself to Jacob as he stood on this great stairway and where Jacob later anointed the memorial stone and made his vow. But here in Genesis 31, we're told that it was actually the angel of God who appeared to Jacob on that auspicious occasion. 
Now, though it may seem strange to some, it's actually quite common to find this sort of language throughout the Old Testament when you start paying attention to it. For example, that scene, the famous scene in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, with the burning bush. This is where God you know, has the famous saying, I am that I am. The very beginning of this scene, we actually find the language that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses there at the bush. And this angel sent by Yahweh says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In cases such as these, the angel or messenger, probably a better way to translate that, the messenger, the one sent by, uh, the messenger of Yahweh speaks and acts as Yahweh himself. But how can that be? How can a messenger sent by Yahweh also be identified as Yahweh? This was indeed mysterious for many Old Testament saints, but it's perfectly understandable for those of us who are familiar with the opening of, say, the Gospel of John, in which we're told that in the beginning the Word was with God, distinction, and the Word was God, unity. In fact, this idea of the Word was the very term that some Jewish writers referred to both at the time of Christ and before this is the, the term that they use to identify the, this angel of the Lord figure who both was sent by Yahweh but also was Yahweh. For example, there was a writer by the name of Philo who wrote that, quote, God sometimes changes his appearance for the sake of those who are unable to bear his true form, and he does this without changing his real nature. Those who are unable to bear the sight of God, Philo says, look upon his image, his angel word, as himself. In fact, in another place, this, Orthodox, this Jewish writer actually refers to the word as, quote, a kind of second God. Though Philo was not a Christian, he was clearly wrestling with ideas that later Christians ended up hammering out as they formulated the doctrine of the Trinity. We read some of that in the, the Chalcedonian definition this morning. But that doc this afternoon, but the doctrine is, uh, though it's more clearly taught in the New Testament, is here in rudimentary form in the text we've been considering from Genesis 28 and 31. This, you know, it's, it, you, the language gets more specific over time, but it's here in our text, the, the, what we're looking at this morning, particularly from Genesis 28. The angel or messenger sent by Yahweh is also identified as Yahweh. And what do we find Jesus saying throughout John's gospel? Over and over and over again, he describes himself as the one sent by the Father. Now let's turn back to Genesis 28 and take a look with me at verse 13. This time I'll read it in the way that I believe it should be translated. Verse 13 of Genesis 28, we see this. Behold, the Lord was standing upon the stairway and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the land upon which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jacob, the schemer, the deceiver who lied to his father by impersonating his own brother, is here in our passage 
mysteriously being blessed by God. Somehow, through Jacob's offspring, Adam's original calling and vocation will be accomplished. Through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But how can these things be? How can such blessings come to such a man as this? Well, if you think about it, this is actually, I mean, the same thing spoken of with Jacob here is what we find. It's the same language we find in the description of the nation as a whole in Deuteronomy 9. Think about uh, that passage in which God says to his people, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that you are entering into this to take possession of this land. Rather, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, but it is in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, it's a gift of God's undeserved favor rooted in his ancient promise, just as is with all of us here this morning. Ah, I won't be able to get this right. Just as it is with all of us here today, we are not saved because of our good works or the uprightness of our hearts, but by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. In verse 15 of Genesis 28, God says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised. It is interesting, just as an aside here, that Jacob is really obsessed with the place. What does God say here? He says, I will be with you wherever you go. And then Jacob anoints the place. This must be the house of God, as if the place were significant. There's a long-standing misinterpretation or, or lack of emphasis or wrong emphasis on the place of God's presence. People confusing the place of the Jerusalem temple as if it were the final place of God's resting place. And Jesus says, I am the true temple. But here, we find the beginning of this sort of misidentification. But God says to Jacob here, I am with you, will keep you wherever you go, and I will do all that I have promised. And then in verse 16, Jacob awakes from his sleep and says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Now that language is interesting. Recall for a moment the important question that David asks in Psalm 24. When he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer given in that psalm is fairly straightforward. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is why we can't make our way back to paradise. Because in Proverbs 20, verse 9, we find the rhetorical question, Who can say I have cleansed my hands? Or, sorry, I have cleansed my heart so that I am free and pure from sin. The answer that the Bible gives in numerous places is that none of us can say this because none of us have clean hands and a pure heart. None that is except Christ alone. But in verse 7 and following of Psalm 24, something unexpected happens. There's a transition to this sort of royal procession. 
Lift up your heads, O O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the psalm asks? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You see, in this psalm, The hill of the Lord is the place of God's everlasting presence. But we are unable to pass through the gate because, to paraphrase Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell amongst a people of unclean lips and sinful hearts. But out of nowhere, we find here this amazing announcement that the king of glory has opened for us the king, sorry, the gates, and we are graciously invited to follow in his train. Because he has clean hands and a pure heart, he is the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord. He is the only one who can open up for us the gate of heaven. Now, the gate of heaven is this phrase that comes up in our text here today. Caught myself. This is the phrase he gives to this, this encounter. He names the place the gate of heaven because he saw the stairway in that place. He called it also Bethel, or house of God. And later in redemptive history, as I mentioned, this language of house of God came to be identified with the Jerusalem temple, since it was identified as the exclusive place of God's presence. And though throughout uh, Israel's long history, the people were actually prohibited from worshiping God in their own way, under every green tree or on every high hill. You're not allowed to do this. Don't worship like the pagans. God had very specific uh, instructions for how he was to be worshipped, and you were not allowed to sacrifice on every high hill. Only one location, the place of the tabernacle, later the place of the Jerusalem temple. And even at the Jerusalem temple, the high priest could not enter into the Holy of Holies but once a year, and that not without blood, the author of Hebrews reminds us. All of this was symbolic, you see, of the fact that we are not allowed to enter into the place of God's holy presence since the way for us is barred. The only way for us to enter into the place of God's dwelling is, as the author of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 9, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by Christ's own blood who who graciously secured for us an eternal redemption. Well, now let's transition from our Old Testament lesson to the New Testament lessons from chapter 1 of John's Gospel. In this section here from uh, chapter 1, we find that John, well, in the very beginning of John's Gospel, in the very opening verse, as we've mentioned already, John announced that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says that this Word who was... There's distinction, but there's also clearly unity and divinity. This word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is the true house of God, the ultimate temple of God's presence. Here is the gate of heaven. In fact, just as Jesus said to the religious leaders in the opening of John's Gospel, chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And the narrator says he was speaking about the temple of his own body. Now, toward the end of chapter 1, 
as Jesus and his disciples were traveling to the region of Galilee, Philip found a friend of his named Nathanael. And he began telling him about Jesus, saying, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That language here in which, P, in which Philip tells Nathanael, he describes Jesus, is very similar to the language Jesus uses after his resurrection to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus said, beginning, or the text says in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So both of these texts, uh, late part of John chapter 1 and, this, and Luke 24, both of these give us a clear license to find Christ throughout all the Old Testament. Jesus is not hinted at here and there in a few messianic prophecies. That's the way I used to look at things. But he's the one of whom Moses wrote about in the law, Philip said to Nathaniel. Jesus himself will say this. You seek the scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life. But these are the texts that speak of me, John 5, 39. Moses wrote of me, he says again and again. Here we should think of when it says uh, the one whom Moses wrote about in, in the law, we shouldn't think of the word law there as a command. It's much broader. And typically it's the idea of Torah, the entire thing, the, fi the entire five books of Moses, which of course includes the passage we're studying this afternoon. When Nathaniel heard Philip say this, he responded by saying, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip then said, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Interesting how there's a contrast between Nathanael and Jacob, because Jacob was a man of deceit. And Nathanael said, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, saying, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said, Truly, truly, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms here in this text that he is the one who appeared to Jacob in Genesis 28. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is the one who graciously descended from heaven and revealed himself to Israel's patriarch, saying that in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Of course, this was essentially a restatement of the Abrahamic promise. For example, in Genesis 22, we're told that the angel of the Lord called to Abram, Abraham and said, Behold, sorry, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. What's interesting is that in both of our passages, uh, Genesis 22 and Genesis 28, it's, the, it's this angel of the Lord, this angel or messenger of Yahweh, who is making the promises. And in Genesis 22, this angel of Yahweh says, By myself I have sworn... The author of Hebrews actually talks about that. You, there's nothing higher from which to swear, which is why this is no ordinary angel. In fact, Isaiah uses this language 
the one who uses this very language. The only other time you see that phrase is in Isaiah's writing, and it's Yahweh himself. By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh. And later in 28, Genesis 28, it's the angel of God who had revealed himself to Abraham's grandson. That is Jacob. And here in that text, he says, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and of Isaac. And with each of these, of these patriarchs, God declares that through their offspring, all the world would be blessed. Paul, of course, unpacks the meaning of this in Galatians chapter 3. In particular, in verse 16, he says, quote, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or to his seed, referring not to many, but to one, namely to Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham and of Jacob, in whom all the world will be blessed. But think about this for a minute. In both Genesis 22 and in Genesis 28, the messenger sent by Yahweh, who somehow also happened to be identified as Yahweh, is the one who appeared to Abraham and to Jacob, and who gave the promise that in your seed all the nations, all the world will be blessed. And yet Jesus himself is the fulfillment of that very promise that he made. He is the one who in the fullness of time would take on flesh and dwell among us. What's interesting is that in various ancient uh, Aramaic paraphrase translations, you're familiar with like the Amplified Bible and the message. There were these kinds of things in the ancient world too. Uh, they're called targums. Uh, but basically it's a paraphrase translation from the Hebrew to uh, Aramaic where you actually see what they actually believe the text said. They expand the translation. And in one of these ancient paraphrases, we see what the ancient Jewish people around, or some, maybe even before the time of Jesus, believed about the text of Genesis 28. For example, in verse 14 of this paraphrase, God says to Jacob, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and on account of your merits, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God speaking to Jacob, on account of your merits, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. By this time in Israel's history, Jacob, you see, had be essentially become the hero of the story. I mean, he's the father of the nation. His name gets changed to Israel. He is the father of the country in the way we think of George Washington as the father of our nation. And so he's the hero. But he's just a broken vessel made of clay. The problem is a lot of us do this. We change the story. We misinterpret. We have confused theology that misses the point. And this is a big place where the point is confused. In the earlier part of the narrative, uh, uh, the, the scene is described this way. Behold, the angel said, come, see the pious man whose image is fixed on the throne of glory, whom you, were whom you were desiring to see. And behold, angels from before the Lord were ascending and descending, looking at him, referring to Jacob. In this version of the story, Jacob is the pious man whose merits will bless the earth and whose image is affixed on the throne of glory. Uh, the problem with this, of course, is that Jacob wasn't at all pious. The book of Genesis clearly presents him as a flawed character. He's a schemer and deceiver. And in fact, this particular rendition of Genesis 28 has completely changed the meaning of the text. 
This story here, as it's recounted in this paraphrased translation, is actually now closer to Genesis 11. If you think about it, the, the theology of this, para, this, uh, this paraphrase, they, he, they are not trying to build a ladder to heaven with bricks and mortar, but they are building a ladder to heaven by human merit. And yet, if you think about it, the theology is only off by a hair. Because if you just change the name from Jacob to Jesus, everything fits. By Christ's merits, all the families of the earth are indeed blessed. He is the righteous and pious one. He is the true image of the invisible God. He is the bridge between heaven and earth upon whom angels ascend and descend. Brothers and sisters, we cannot build a tower reaching to the heavens either by brick and mortar or by the ladder of human merit. We cannot create a utopia here in this land east of Eden or build our way back to paradise by our own works. However, the story of Genesis 28 tells us about a gracious God who descends to his people in mercy. He descended from heaven in order to rescue fallen sinners like us. Like Jacob, we were fast asleep and totally unresponsive there at the bottom of this great stairway. This is precisely what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. This is the scene in which he says uh, that a person can't even see the kingdom unless he's born anew, born from above. And when the teacher of Israel was confused by this, Jesus said, quote, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended, he said, into heaven, except he who descended from heaven. That's the very principle that Genesis 28 was teaching us so many thousands of years earlier. At the end of the day, there are really only two religions in the world. There's the religion of Genesis 11, in which man, by his own strength and ingenuity, attempts to build a tower reaching to the heavens to bridge the gap between heaven and earth, to make our way back to paradise. And then there's the religion of Genesis 28, in which God graciously descends to us in his own mercy and grace. The residents of Babel attempted to build a tower reaching to the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be the heroes of their own story. But rather than bridging the gap between heaven and earth, they ended up bringing down a curse that further divided mankind. Do you see that around you today? Do you see division and strife? Do you see people trying to create utopia? Maybe there's a connection. In contrast, what we find in, uh, what we find in the story of Jesus here was one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And as a result, God highly exalted him. He lifted him up and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, Philippians 2. Beloved, Jesus doesn't merely show us the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. J. Gresham Machen, the great Princeton scholar, once noted that Liberal versions and forms of Christianity are always in the imperative mood. Basically, they're commands. Do this. That's 
standard for liberal Christianity to the present day, where if you happen to show up at a, at a liberal Presbyterian church, often what you'll find is not the indicative gospel promises about what Christ has done for us, but here are the steps to create a better world. It's always in the imperative mood, but the gospel revealed throughout the New Testament, he said, begins with this triumphant indicative. It's a description of what God has done to save us, not a description of what we need to do to save ourselves. All the religions of the world that reject this gospel-centered, this indicative approach are essentially following the same storyline of Genesis 11. Just keep building, just keep climbing, step by step, rung by rung, and you'll make your way to the pearly gates. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. We cannot bridge the gulf between heaven and earth. What we need is a theology rooted in the message of God's grace as revealed in Genesis 28. We need a gospel that declares to us that God is the one who graciously descends to us to rescue and redeem us, even while we're enemies, even while we're dead in our sins. In short, we need a theology that points us away from ourselves and all our thoughts of merit and self-glorification, but one that reveals to us a God who came to be our righteousness. Step by step, rung by rung, the Lord of glory climbed down the great stairway, which ultimately led to Golgotha. So what's your part in all of this? You're the lifeless corpse there at the bottom of the stairway. You're the one he came to save. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and in his grace, he has raised you to new life and has seated you in heavenly places. This is the message, not only of the New Testament, but it's also the message we find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the one we've been looking at this afternoon. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing Christ to us in this passage. We thank you for graciously interrupting the course of our fallen world with the surprising news of your gospel. Though we had been barred from paradise, you opened up a new way through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Grant, we pray, that we may be able to place our trust in him until we draw our last breath. May we persevere in this faith until we are received at last into your eternal kingdom. And grant also that we may love one another as we have been loved in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.